podcraft. This episode is sponsored by Still Point Wellness. I love Still Point Wellness. I love the staff. I love their services. They offer a very unique spa experience in Asheville. All of their services are designed to help you unplug from the stresses of today's modern world. And boy, do we all need that. They do it through services like saltwater flotation, also known as sensory deprivation, the world-renowned Esalen massage, cranial sacral therapy, and somatic psychology. They are locally owned and operated by my dear friends, Corey Costanzo and Robin Fan Costanzo. Corey is a somatic therapist and he teaches mindfulness meditation courses. And Robin is an internationally renowned massage instructor who was actually inducted into the Massage World Hall of Fame. Their highly skilled massage staff have each trained under Robin and each earned full certification to practice Esalen Massage. I love Esalen Massage. I know it. I'm an Esalen Massage practitioner. It is a fantastic massage. Together, Koi and Robin have created a world-class experience in understanding the mind-body connection through deep relaxation. So contact them at stillpointwell.com or call 828-348-5372. And don't forget to mention discount code PREPO to get 10% off your first float and first Esalen massage. I really believe that you're going to love the experience. This idea that a particularly a heteronormative model where women and men are so often so different and often looking for different things where we put them in a house together and then they're supposed to get along and do all these really complex, somewhat stressful things together and survive and thrive. Uh, it's, it's sort of untenable. But the question is, we're not allowed to question that. Welcome, everybody, to the podcast, Relationships. Let's talk about it. I'm Preble Toplitsky. I'm a psychotherapist specializing in relationship issues. Everybody's got one. Partners, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, relationships. Let's talk about it. In today's episode, I had a conversation with Lee Warren. Lee is a co-founder and designer and builder of an off-grid, sustainable-built co-housing neighborhood at Earthhaven Echo Village in Black Mountain, North Carolina. She's the founder and manager of Imani Farm, a five-acre pasture-based cooperative farm, and a managing partner of Soil, School of Integrative Living, which teaches organic food production, regenerated systems, and community living. Lee is also an herbalist, a writer, a teacher, a food activist with an avid interest in rural wisdom, alternative relationships, sustainable economics, and women's issues. She, she is also a very good friend and neighbor. We had a diverse conversation of different and alternative models of relationships. We explored monogamy, polyamory, platonic relationships, friendships, we questioned and explored the challenges of having these authentic, alternative, and empowered relationships. So go ahead and give it a listen. I think you're going to find it very interesting. 
Hey Lee, thanks for coming today and enjoying this uh, wonderful journey of what we're going to talk about. So you and I have known each other for 15 years maybe? Neighbors, kind of community members, friends. So uh, relationship with you have been a wonderful, interesting, diverse path. And I know you have many relationships with people and you have a lot to say about relationships. <laughs> so <laughs> with that smirk that you got... <laughs> Where do you want to go? What do you want to start with on relationships? Yeah, well, the context of know, us knowing each other, and I think it's probably been closer to 20 years, is that mm. I, I live in an intentional community um, near um, where you and, and your family live. And I've lived in intentional community for 25 years, which is sort of a counterculture alternative style of life. And I think my whole life, I have been longing for answers to questions that society isn't even asking. Uh, but for me, the questions are, is this all there is? The marriage, the house, the white picket fence, the 2.5 children. And from a young age, I just have rejected that philosophy and that template uh, and have sought a whole series of alternative ways of relating, including living in intentional community, which I you know, early on felt was the sort of social, political, environmental solution uh, that I wanted to practice in my life. And now I see it as one of many models that we're pioneering as we discover who we are, as we discover our cosmology. I think that's the wonderful thing. There's so many models, you know, we can get caught up in all the names. And to me, there's all these names out there that put it in the box, but it's aspects of people experimenting of what works, you know. So we were talking about some things that don't work in, in certain relationships because you are also in monogamous relationships. You experimented with that, right? Mm -hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean that's the model that's handed to us, right? And so um, I think uh, most of us walk down that path at one time or another. Um, and even you know, seeing the gay marriage struggle of them trying to get into the game right, of monogamous marriage. Like many of us thought, don't get into this game, mm. create a different game, create a game where this game isn't the only game in town. Um, but in some ways, I think that needed to happen where everyone has full access to whatever game is, is on the plate at the moment. And then, and then we can create alternatives and we are creating alternatives and queer folks and queer culture are creating alternatives. But um, I, and I do think that there's, value in monogamous relationship. I don't know that we need to throw it out entirely. Uh, it's a great, the nuclear family is a great model in many ways for structure, especially around raising children. Uh, I think there could be better structures, uh, but it creates a stability. And if people can stay together for the long term, it creates huge bonds, extended family bonds, um, bonds with children and grandchildren. The problem is that's just not really what's happening with the template. You know, that apparently more than 50% these days of marriages end in divorce, at least that's first marriages. And then when you talk about second and third marriages, I think you're in the 60 percentages mm -hmm. and 70 percentages and above. Um, so there's, you know, and then people sort of take that in and blame themselves or blame each other and we pathologize each other. But I really love the idea of taking a step back and looking at the model itself what is, is that model working? Yeah, because I think it's, there's a difference between, yeah, like you said, taking a look at the model, because in a model, there are things that are working. Like there's an aspect of my relationship. I'm in a, a monogamous committed relationship for 23 years, and I've wanted that, and I've worked at it. Um, I have also experienced it and achieved 
what I want from, like you said, the model with the, with the family. To me, it's been just wonderful to have the same nuclear family and grow together and support each other. And so there's an aspect of people doing well in some of the models. But like you said, that's such a minority. I say the same thing to my to my clients too around the institutional marriage of, of 50 to 60% are getting a divorce out of the rest of that. 40%, probably half are miserable and staying, just staying. And so that leaves 15 to 20% that may be thriving. It's not a successful model. However, I think just like anything as human beings, the life of a human being is that model just successful in itself. So it's a constant experimentation. Yeah. I mean, uh, let's definitely explore why this model is the status quo. But I do think in looking at your marriage, I think your your marriage is one of maybe a handful of marriages in, in my world that I can look at and say, that's a successful mm. primary partnership. And I think for all of us to take stock and really look around, I mean, you work with couples. I don't know that many relationships nope. where I would want to be in it, where I would say, hey, I could do that. That that model, that could work for me, that that structure or those people, or it's just even the even the monogamous partnerships that I see, mostly I cringe. <laughs> uh, so, so there's anecdotal evidence in addition to the statistical evidence mm -hmm. that it's it's a it's a tricky road to hoe for yeah. sure. Mm -hmm. So, what values do you see in any type of aspect of successful relationship, whatever alternative terms we use or monogamy? You know, what do you believe would make those experiences being su successful? Right. So, you know, the ha the word happiness gets bounced around a lot, right? That people want to be happy. Um, is that a mark of a truly successful relationship? I think um, personal happiness is really important. But for me, the question is, is, is everyone involved thriving, right? Is everyone involved engaged in some kind of nourishing relating? Um, and, and that means everyone, the extended family, the community, the teachers in the school. And so it's sort of, I zoom out a little bit with this. It's, I think we can get insular and overly independent and overly isolated in our culture, which is sort of the problem. We're suffering from some of these diseases now. So for me, I, I look at the context of community um, and I think about happiness being um, more than just is one person responsible for my happiness or is this one relationship responsible for my happiness, but in how many different directions am I engaged and are those relationships all thriving? So it's sort of a bigger question. It's a more holistic question than let me focus on this one relationship because um, frankly, they're not lasting. And even if they are, they go through their phases. Sometimes they're thriving and sometimes they're not thriving. You know, this from your own marriage where all of our relationships go through those things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And their common denominator is ourselves. I think that that's the one aspect of looking to see how to have all these wonderful periphery relationships and how they um, reflect upon one another. But one aspect is the common denominator ourselves. If we're not having a healthy relationship and know thyself and take responsibility and accountability, that's for none. We can't have these thriving relationships. So a lot of people look so outward at times of finding the right person or people to be in relationship with. They have to find themselves to be in right relationship in order to be in right relationship with others. Right. What are people really saying when they, when they say that, you know, they have needs for 
we have we have so many needs as humans we walk around with but you know um intimacy for sure sexual expression for sure uh, belonging for sure um a sense of being able to contribute and be contributed to. These are complex things. And so a, week, a lot of those needs can get met, not in a primary partnership. While there's a certain sweetness or a certain intimacy uh, or a certain sort of tender thing that happens in primary partnership, um, the opposite is also true. Hard stuff can happen there. So I, I think my question these days, and, and I was mentioning this to you earlier, that I, I'm in this gloriously single time of my life for the last three and a half years, and I never knew that I could create so much satisfaction and love and happiness and ecstasy in my own world. And that's sort of, I'm generating that from within me. And then I bring that to whatever relationships I'm in, and I'm super picky about who I'm hanging out with at this stage in my life. And what I want is... um to be able to toss the ball of love and satisfaction and ecstasy and um, reflection and connection. And I want that ball tossed back. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm finding my way towards a whole tribe of people that are also into creating that. And it seems like you're also um, choosing well, which is half the battle in some aspects, you know, there is that aspect of choosing well. So we have to know ourselves in the aspect of what we want, what we desire, what we prefer. Our own boundaries are so important. So I'm also hearing you say how you're very selective because you also want to choose well of who and how you're in relationship with. Yeah, managing expectations throughout my life has been an ongoing struggle. And sometimes being outside of the primary partnership model, I find myself standing on the playground alone sometimes mm. because I want a level of intimacy with people and maybe they're partnered up or they're paired off. But I have managed over the you know time of my adult life to create a tribe, enough of a group of people. And they're not all in the same place. They're not all in my intentional community. Sometimes they're uh, a group that's around different areas of interest in my life, but that I have found people who are willing to be fully present and available, whether or not they are partnered. And a lot of my community right now are people who aren't partnered and who are looking to form that sense of family with each other. And it's just so rich. Mm. So we haven't used this term yet, but the aspect, if we want to put a label on some, there's aspects of polyamory, which is also different than open relationships. To me, open relationship is an aspect of having a primary monogamous relationship, but all of a sudden then you open it up more sexually than you do for more a, a love and intimate relationship, which is more polyamory people that are more in um, different aspects of, of love and connection in other relationships or multiple relationships. Do you define it like that? Some people get really confused. <laughs> I know they come to me and they, they're trying to decide in some way what alternative relationship can I have because I'm not getting my needs satisfied in this primary relationship, but I don't want to leave this primary relationship. So those terms are thrown out to people of experimentation. Oh, there's so many options these days, and it's so great. I, I want to reference David Rico, who wrote a book called How to Be an Adult in Relationship, mm -hmm. who says that no more than 25% of your needs should be met in your primary relationship. And think how light on your feet you can get when you're like, I have 70% of my, 75% of my needs that are going to get met elsewhere. My purpose, my meaning, my contribution, I'm going to get that met in my work and my creativity. Maybe I'll be doing art over here, and I have all this, these other friend groups. Maybe I'll join a bowling team. 
and I'm going to create a potluck situation every week. So staying light on our feet and not demanding of our partners to meet more than 25% of our needs is a really great recipe. Mm. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that the relationship has to become sexually open or polyamorous. Um, sometimes that's an, a place that people can experiment um, my experience with that is we're not mature enough generally uh, as a culture or as a people to manage that level of emotion that tends right. to come up with sexual non-monogamy um, because what happens is our animal bodies get really, really threatened that our beloveds are going to be taken away and lots of drama and trauma start coming in. Uh, so while I love that the polyamory community exists and I think we need to be experimenting on every level these days, I think there are ways to to do really rich, diverse, loving relationships without the sexuality entering into it. Um, and that might be a safer step for people as they're opening up to try to find other ways to meet their needs. Yeah, the safer step, I think, is so important because to do that right, to expand, if people are in a monogamous relationship or any relationship, it's so vital, the level of honesty, the level of communication has to be so high to have a successful experimentation and people thriving because if we don't know what each other are experiencing, if we don't have safety and support and trust in certain aspects of agreement, that jealousy and that drama is going to heighten and, and it's going to block and put up a wall of that fear for even experimentation. Right. Yeah. We, we sort of live in a culture of lack around love and touch and, mm. and pillow talk and sexual expression and sensuality. We live, we live in a lack of abundance. I mean, you think about the opposite of that, which is food is available anywhere, anytime, any place, and we can get it however we want it. And, you know, certainly some of us have compulsions around food, but mostly it's available for us and we don't get all neurotic about it. And if love and touch and um, connection and relationship were as ubiquitous, as available, uh, we wouldn't have so much um, terror when we thought about it leaving or losing it. But because we have so much lack and because we have so many issues of privacy. And, and I'm not saying that necessarily should be different. It just is the way it, it is now that we get very threatened when we think of our beloveds. Um, I think we get very threatened. There's many people that stay in relationships that I work with because of the fear of their own lack of being able to partner up again. Yeah, And that's many people stay because they don't think that they can find somebody, even find somebody that's satisfactory, let alone somebody that they're going to thrive with. So that lack comes into the personhood of, mm -hmm. of many people. And it's realistic because, because the partnership model is that like elusive thing, the, the chances of finding someone at your stage of life that has your values and vision that is that perfect fit, it's, it's hard to find because it is the, mis the mythical other, right? The Jungians talk about that, the mythical other. Mm -hmm. We're going to project our anima or our animas. We're going to project our inner god or goddess on this other person and goodness, they better live up to it. And if they don't, I'm out of here, right. right? As opposed to creating that God and goddess and the people that we are in community with and creating just really rich relationships wherever we are, wherever we go. So we can 
just be satisfied in the moment. And what if we had more access to touch? You know, I'm part of a group of people that does cuddle parties and um, I'm a group of group of friends that feels comfortable touching each other. And I get so many of my needs met there. So I'm not forced to be in a relationship where now I'm bargaining touch for sex or touch for support or, you know, we tend to get into these relationships now where we're bargaining. It's sort of a commodity. It's sort of a uh, commercial endeavor in a way. Um, and that really kills authenticity and it kills aliveness and vibrancy. So how can we bring both co- commitment, loyalty, longevity uh, with the kind of freedom we're all looking for? Because w- th- you're right. The freedom is what we're looking for. We're even looking for freedom in the aspect of a relationship. We think that that's going to set us free if we love deeply in some way. So in essence, we're all looking for that aspect of freedom. And unfortunately, sometimes those relationships starts contracting the feeling of being free. Right. Yeah. Usually in our primary partnership model, we cut off more and more and more of ourselves to accommodate the other person. And it takes a lot of consciousness and a lot of work to not to not do that, to stay a whole person um, because we are so dependent on each other. So again, like I come back to the model. I think the model is flawed. Um, I think the model has been handed to us as part of an industrial capitalistic system uh, and we we haven't always lived this way. I like to reference, you know, many traditional peoples and indigenous peoples who wouldn't have imagined nuclear family units. In fact, one of the ways to take a thriving indigenous culture and make it barely surviving is to put people in homes and individual nuclear family units. That's a way to take the the tribe from a thriving tribe to a barely surviving tribe. Um, Because most peoples lived in situations where women got a lot of their needs met from women and men got a lot of needs, their needs met from men. They contributed in ways that were significant and specific to their gender or their age or their stage or their style. Um, and then the children were cared for collectively often. I don't want to idealize or romanticize or put this over stereotype and very few indigenous or traditional cultures were nuclear family oriented. Extended families were were what emerged as we moved more into industrialization. Um, So this idea that particularly a heteronormative model where women and men are often so different and often looking for different things where we put them in a house together and then they're supposed to get along and do all these really complex, somewhat stressful things together and survive and thrive. uh, It's, it's sort of untenable. The question is we're not allowed to question that. Mm. We're not allowed to take that model apart. And I do think we have exciting things emerging that are showing us a different way of being. So many things came to me when, when you were talking and uh, when you were saying about the industrial model, of course, the economics of it, just even the the one little thing that sticks out to most people in April, the aspect are you married, married and filing jointly. If you do that, you get a tax advantage. So it's economically in some way that model became the incentive for people to work in a capitalistic society in a nuclear family mm-hmm. that would benefit them. Right. Throughout time, throughout human history, you know, we, we worked um, 
you know, medieval serfs worked four hours a day, right? So here we are in the industrial age, and it was supposed to sort of give us all this free time, and most of us are working 40, 50, 60 hours a week. So um, that's a whole interesting psychology to look at. But, right, there's something about um, putting people into nuclear family units that sort of suppresses wildness, that sort of suppresses this some level of aliveness and creativity. Um, and so maybe it creates stability and, and there's something beautiful about a stable civilization. There's, there's beautiful things that come from that, but there's also a lot of suppression and depression, um, that come from that. And what would it be like if we all had access to more aliveness? Mm. Would we, and we ha had access to more fair economics, would we choose something different? I'm guessing we would, right. uh, I'm guessing we wouldn't, a lot of us stay in marriages, and stay in nuclear family systems because it's really hard to be a single mom or single dad making right. it out there. Um, but what if we could find even more creative options? Right. What if we could re-envision and look at nature and look at, look at how we've done uh, so small social groups over time? And I think that's one of the things that excites me about intentional community, even though these days I'm not full-time living in community, but it's, it's a pocket of experimentation of what's possible. We need 10,000 of these experiments. Uh, we need people to be experiment experimenting with relationships on every level. You know, a queer community is a great example of, I, I have a, a group of queer friends and none of them are married and some of them have children that are grown. Uh, but again, that, that emergence of family that's not blood family, that emergence of I'm going to create the family that I always wanted, my chosen family. Um, and that is emerging throughout queer culture. You see that and, and all the gender nonconformity. I mean, it's, it's begging the question of not, us not conforming in every area of our lives. It's helping us rethink everything. So one thing that comes to mind when you're, when you talk about community, um, the challenge I know for me when I'm in community or even the challenge of my life is this also aspect of sharing. You know, I I want to be more open with my sharing. So that means my things, myself, we talk about relationship, but I have an interesting just feeling of hmm, how often do I share my, my MacBook? How, how often do I share my car? Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll let people borrow it here and there. And this aspect of, I think, really opening up to the aspect of sharing that's all around us and sharing ourselves and that understanding of openness of possibilities, I think is part of some of the limitless aspects of community life, of all that experimentation when it comes to sharing, because that's the level of having really adult, mature, alternative relationships that really may change the world. Yeah, well, a couple of things come to mind when you say that, which is um, not every, when I talk about community, I don't actually mean residential community. Most people don't want to be living in residential community, but I think we do need to recreate the village wherever we are. However, we're, whatever, whether we're urban or suburban or rural, uh, whatever subgroups we're in, that there's a village to be created. And that's where we need to work towards. Um, and there's so many options. See, that's what I love about you. Cause just when I say that, and I was going down a path about that, you went right out and said, wait a second, it's not all about the aspect of communal life. Cause you and your experience have been experimenting and living in between many worlds right now of experiment and how to be in community. You have your own houses, your, your own things, but you are in community here and there, different ways of 
residential, but also not, like you said, community of, of, of thoughts and interest and opening it to, I just put that out for people so that they open up the box of what they really think when we talk about community, living in community. Yeah. Yeah, I have lived in residential community for a long time. And one thing I've discovered about myself in midlife is that I don't want to share a kitchen or a mm. bathroom anymore, that I like a level of, um, of cleanliness and order that is a bit contemplative for me. I get a lot of like a joy from having everything in its place. It's sort of like being a monk. And so I have realized that picking up after people are being frustrated that people don't pick up after themselves. Like I'm done with that particular piece. I think it was great for me. It built a lot of muscle, taught me a lot about my intolerances, <laughs> taught me a lot about the world and about other people. And right now I love having my space be exactly how I want it. That yeah. gives me so much joy. And I do think that I was naive when I came into residential community that I could change people or that I could have what I wanted. And when you talk about sharing, um, yeah, we have to build trust. We have to definitely build trust as we let people in. I mean, some of us have even married people turned out to not be trustworthy, mm. right? So Trust is a huge question and we don't, we're going to share, sure, we could share a sidewalk with someone we don't know, but we're not going to share a bed with someone we don't know, right. right? As we get healthier and as we get more integrated. So I think that those, that, that language of, I call it the zones of intimacy, uh, of knowing what we need and what requirements are needed in order to bring people in closer is a literacy that we could all use some more education in. Can you describe a little bit the zones of intimacy, zones of relationship? Sure. It's a model that's mirrored on the permaculture zones, which is basically how one would design around their home, um, with the home being in zone zero, which is I spend the most time um, out to zone five, which is the wildness. And in a social context, the zones of intimacy represent the zero is my relationship with myself and with the divine. And then zone one is my my zone of marriage, who is what, who and what am I married to? And then zone two is my closest allies. Zone three is my community. Zone four are acquaintances and zone five are strangers. And so I'm interacting all throughout the day, throughout these zones and what's appropriate in zone five, what's appropriate in zone one and who am I willing to bring into zone one or two or three. And that is something that we could learn at a very early age we don't get taught about relationships in our mm. educational system. We don't get it taught about our own feelings yeah. and needs, about conflict resolution, what happens when we have feelings and needs that are really hard for us to sit with. We don't get taught about empathy. We could be learning this literacy of how to build trust. What's my particular flavor of trust? What's your particular flavor of trust? And so we're all scrambling around trying to learn this as adults when it's the hardest time to learn these things because our brains are already formed. So that's also an aspect of evolution of relationships in the future. To, we have to teach it at a younger age, yes. have to have it in aspects of an educational system that's also open and expanding and alternative. But the aspect, like you said, of fundamental aspects of relationships, empathy, acknowledgement, validation, boundaries, to be able to be taught at a younger age is going to enable people to be way more in line in relationships that are healthy. Right. Yeah. This idea that interpersonal relationships are just going to happen. Well, the truth of the matter is an intrapersonal relationship has to happen first before I can be successful at communicating with you or anyone is the idea that 
I need to know what's true for me. And, and the better, the more literate, uh, the better able I am to translate that for myself, the better I am able to translate that for others. And this is, I think, another David Rico quote, which is the mark of an adult relationship is how well you can negotiate. Mm. Because, you know, codependent or addicted or dysfunctional relationships may have power over dynamics, but we don't want those kind of relationships. We want relationships where we're negotiating hey, you need this, I need this, let's talk about that. That's the kind of relationship that's truly mature. And mm -hmm. how do we do that if we don't have negotiation skills? We right. don't even know what's going on for us. That's right. And that's where people get so scared. So many people that are counsel are afraid to conflict avoid, and they're so afraid of the potential of conflict in the aspects of negotiation. And they don't learn the art of repair. And they just go from harmony to disharmony, and they wait. And they don't do anything about it until they slowly come back in harmony at status quo. And they don't go into the aspect of the art of repair to go deeper into harmony. And so those skills are not learned around negotiation. People are petrified at times of avoiding the aspect of conflict. Especially they grew up in many aspects of conflict-avoiding families. So they right. don't learn it. And that's a disaster. There's a train wreck waiting to happen Absolutely. if you can. I mean, if, if one can name very quickly what's going on and then very quickly, you know, get to a place where they're curious about what's going on for the other person. You've just, you bypassed maybe days, weeks, years of confusion. Mm. Really. If, and really that's so, so much the key is being able to self-identify and have some empathy. And if you haven't, if people haven't learned that, good luck at relating that's actually satisfying. Yeah. And that is something that's kind of wrong with the model of the expectation that people are supposed to couple up so fast and so soon and so constant because it's very difficult to find that sense of self and understanding of knowing oneself to be able to communicate in a relationship if all you are is in relationship. Sure, there's many things that you can only learn, I think, relational because you're in a relationship, but boy, would, do we have to know ourselves and spend time with ourselves in order to be able to communicate who we are to someone else. Right. And then there's the learning that, you know, it took me decades to figure out that men think, feel, express differently than women do. Nobody taught me that. And mm. as many self-help books as I've read and as much as I've been on a personal growth path, it took me until my, my 40s to, to realize that we are not processing the same way that I wasn't processing the same as my partners and that I had to learn and adjust and understand what was going on for them when I, you know, got emotional or demanded to, to process something through or, you know, had all these expectations and just thought something was bad and wrong with them personally and didn't realize, wow, there's a whole gender potentially that thinks differently than I do. Like nobody told me that. Hmm. That would have been a really important piece of information in first grade. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, I just recently, I don't know, a few years ago, found out that a woman's fear center is larger than a man's fear center, but it's much more close and located to the sexual arousal center. And that made so much sense to me about the aspect of women wanting to feel safe and to be able to feel connected before sexual activity and sexual arousal and so forth. And the aspect of being able to rely on their man, rely on the emotional stability, rely on the support will decrease, of course, that their fear center. And 
to me, it was such an awakening. And I try to tell men of, hey, man, do not do the scary things that you're doing, even when you get large and, and uh, how you are, even though the intimidation is not meant there. Physically, there's a visceral aspect of fear that comes up that's very different for men than it is for women. You know, there was um, an example that I heard in an audio book of a conference of men and women, and the person asked, how many um, men have had fear of their life? And men, some men raised their hands and they said, was it in the last 20 years? And some raised last 10 years, some raised last five, very few raised their hand when it came to about a year or less. They asked women the same thing and all women were raising their hands and they asked, did you have fear today? All women raised their hand. Did you have fear walking from the parking lot to the conference center? And almost all women raised their hands and all the men looked around stunned. So I think even that basic aspect, like you're saying, of understanding each other's, especially our arousal templates, can really benefit us when we are trying to understand and negotiate and work through conflict. Yeah, those are excellent examples. I uh, I like the example also of women are frustrated by men going from, you know, quick arousal to intercourse and not having foreplay. We've learned this over the decades that if men want women to have sexual pleasure, they need to slow down. Well, the reverse is true with men where we expect them to be emotionally available at the drop of a hat because we're constantly in our emotions. We're constantly wanting to process what's going on for us and asking them to drop quickly into emotional unrelatedness is like giving them no foreplay. And that was a revelation to me. Do you hear that, women out there? You got to give your man foreplay by that. I like that. (laughs) Thanks. Emotional foreplay. Absolutely. Let them warm up to it. It's not their language. It's not where they're living. Yeah. Yeah. Aspects of understanding slow start. Men get um, overwhelmed very easily. They get flooded very easily. And I don't think a lot of women just really understand that. They take that as avoidance and withdrawal. Sure, that happens with men. But a lot of aspects is the quick floodedness that happens. And sometimes it's not, it's because, like you're saying, we're not multitasking most men in the aspect of thinking and feeling emotions. You women are doing that all the time. That's why I tell men is like acknowledge and validate what your partner is feeling. Doesn't You don't have to agree with it whatsoever. If she said the sky's green, the sky's green. Don't look it up in Wikipedia that there's no green sky. Acknowledge and validate so that she gets to move and feel those feelings. And then all the sense is going to come because she's thinking and feeling at the same time. Men get incongruency very fast and we cut right through and that's the fix it mode because we can't tolerate incongruency, especially in thought and feelings. And so... There is that difference that if we understand that, we can really then be able to understand what is going on for each of us to be able to work together, which I think is so important, working together in that understanding, not just let the other person take total responsibility. That's taking care of your relationship. That's being relational communicating. I love that there are people like you out there supporting the translation and books out there that are supporting in the translation. But I also keep coming back to like, why did we think it was a good idea to stick these people in a life together for decades on end? Right. Is that a type one error? Is that a mismanagement of, of smooth operating systems? Right. right. Exactly. I mean, it would be great to get to know each other and understand these gender differences without so much pressure. Because what happens, and you see this in your counseling pra- practice all the time, I'm sure, is that the the misunderstanding of the genders becomes life or death. 
right? It becomes, you know, staying together or divorcing, right? And it's not light anymore. It's not fun anymore. It's not a curiosity anymore. It's a death grip. Right, exactly. And that's where the suffering takes place. A lot of people suffer in the aspect of between what it is that they have and what they want. That's different. And there is a lot of suffering because of the expectation that they had and the realization that perhaps what they want is not what their expectation was. Right. But if I have five really close girlfriends that are ready at any moment to hear that the sky is green for Mm, me or that I had a bad day or that I tripped over, you know, a crack in the street or or whatever happened for me, they get what I need instantly. I don't need to, you know, set them up or warm them up or prepare them. I mean, like right there, we're ready to hear each other. So then if my male friend or my male lover is not available for that, that's okay. I can let him be who he is. But if that's my sole emotional support, we are in trouble. That's right. You know, we're we're both cat lovers. And I heard this story about when my cat sits next to me and I'm giving her some loving and all of a sudden she just gets up and go away. I don't get pissed off. I don't like try to change her. She's doing her cat thing. She's going to come back and give me love and be there, but then she'll go off. And and what we don't give each other some of that acceptance. We try to change. If we did that, if a person acted like a cat in a, in a relationship, we would try to change it. No, you need to stay closer in that bonding. They have a cat aspect in them in, in some way. So when we're getting those needs and and bonding desires met in different areas of our life, like you said, that 25% part of the pie, which is right on, because the movie bullshit of you complete me doesn't work. That means I'm half, you're half, two broken people coming together to make a whole. It's bullshit. It doesn't work at all. It's the fantasy. So filling those pieces of our pie is so vital that we don't give the relationship, the primary relationship, such burden, such burden to be able to satisfy all those aspects of ourselves. Yeah, one model that I really like that people are experimenting more and more with, and I see it in the media, and I've actually experimented this with this in my life, is having a primary, maybe even monogamous partnership, but not living together, mm-hmm. right? So having your own sacred space, having your own work life, having your own group of friends, and then when you come together as partners or as lovers, you've identified what needs you're trying to meet with each other, and you can really be... Um, more present, more awake. I, I sort of used to call it, I, I'd come to the relationship like an athlete. I do all my business and then when I'm present for the relationship, I'm 100% there because I'm not required to be there all the time. So it's, it becomes a very special thing for me. Um, and I, I really do think that that shifts the dynamic and it can, and I love to watch people experimenting with this. Mm, right, yeah. And it is about experimenting with it and there is that part where I know for in my relationship, my monogamous relationship, uh, my wife and I, we have certain roles. I used to think that I was conforming in some of the traditional roles, but I'm realizing that it's actually be- we, we have stuck to some of those roles because we're both really good at our own roles. I love how she makes a house. You know, it's just so beautiful and warm and loving and creative. It's not her role to do that. I love being out in the world and doing some of my work. And so our, I think we, we fit into it, but I'm realizing that one reason why we're successful is because we thrive in those separate aspects of our roles. Many people are pushed into those roles 
and they are reluctant to be in those roles and they want to change those those roles. And of course, that needs to be changed when you're not uh, in agreement and negotiation and also thriving in it. But it was an interesting aspect of, I love living with this person and um, it's inspiring to live with this person in ways and to live with my son, as I was telling you earlier, how his self-care and self-hygiene is such an inspiration of how he takes care of himself. And I see as when I'm actually alone more in these months that my wife is gone, which is also a wonderful aspect that we're experimenting with. Heck, almost three months out of the year, two months out of the year, we're not with each other. She's with family in Europe and in Denmark. And so we're finding that balance. But I also know there's some habits that I have when I'm by myself that I, I, I don't want to have. And when she's with me, there's some aspect that I get to be more of the self that I want. So that's a beautiful thing for me. And uh, it's an interesting aspect of how we've experimented over the years. I do have a, a couple friends and one client that's experimenting with being in committed relationship, long-term relationship right now, and not continuing to live together. They haven't lived together for a while. And as you said, just really feeling that aspect of autonomy, but yet being in a relationship and seeing, seeing each other in their own environments and, and overlapping in uh, the other's environment where it really works for people. And so, as you're saying, this model that people have stuck in their mind that has to be a certain way that they grew up with or society pushes on them. And if they're suffering, there's different ways to be. Yeah, we're blowing that model up in so many ways. And you had talked about roles. And I think women entering the workforce in the 1970s have sh has shifted everything. And now I think more and more women are um, integrating. Uh, they're integrating their masculine, their feminine, their yin-yang, however we want to say it. Um, and part of how they're doing that is they're they're really moving and shaking in their professional lives. And they're not economically, when women aren't economically dependent on men, the, we have a blank canvas. That's right. Because this is what we're coming out of, hundreds and thousands of years of women being economically owned in many ways, uh, economically dependent, uh, and really in, in many cases would literally die if they didn't have men in their lives who were responsible for them. Uh, and still in the world today, that's true. So as women become more and more empowered and are able to have economic independence, they're going to make different choices. And and now I think with the women women's movement has brought us so much goodness. And I think the men's movement has to catch up in that men have to take responsibility for having an inner world and for keeping a good home and for finding those values, those sort of more receptive or more uh, the values that they get from the women in their lives. They need to, they need to integrate that in them. And so that we're whole people and whole people interacting with each other. Uh, because I think one of the things women are getting tired of is being the emotion, the sole emotional support mm. for the men in their lives. That's got to stop yeah. because that's exploiting women in the same way women have been exploited for their labor all these years. It's just a different kind of labor. It's something we're really good at and we should be remunerated and recognized for it instead of being, having people depend on us in those ways. Yeah. I love recently when the Dalai Lama has been quoted and saying that the, it's the Western woman that's going to save the world. And that aspect of that independence and that economics, he meant Western women are going to save the world. I know you're one of them, baby. I am so <laughs> glad that you're out there in this world doing your thing, sharing your gifts, experimenting, and being such a beautiful human being that you are. Mm. 
thank you so much for sharing this conversation with me. I want to do this again with you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Relationships. Let's Talk About It is a production of HeartShare Counseling and Consulting PC of Asheville, North Carolina. For more on licensed professional counselor Prepo Teplitsky, visit heartsharecounseling.com. Theme music by Adi the Monk at adithemonk.com. This content is intended for informational purposes only, is not a substitute for professional counseling and psychotherapy, medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, and does not constitute medical or other professional advice. Relationships, Let's Talk About It is produced by PodCraft. Create your own great podcast today, faster and easier at podcraft.us.